Well, my title this morning is just two words, Christ forsaken. It's difficult to compare one verse of the Bible to another, but the verse that we have, and particularly this sentence, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? is a verse of very great mystery. This is the second prayer out of the three prayers that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed upon the cross. There were seven sayings. The first was a prayer. The fourth was a prayer. And the seventh was a prayer. I suggest to you that this is the apex, this is the peak, this is the pyramid. All the words are important, but there is a depth, there is a profundity in these words which we just cannot understand. And I think it's right to confess that before we begin to open up this verse and try and apply its lessons we can't answer all the questions that are generated from this verse. This is a conversation between the Son and the Father. And it generates questions which are so deep and somewhat mysterious. It's a question. Christ is asking, I think it's principally for our benefit, not for his. He asks a question, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I don't know the answer. I can suggest a few reasons, but I'm sure they're quite superficial. It's also a pattern for us this morning. And we shall consider this, a pattern that we must follow when we find ourselves in trials as believers. If you're a Christian this morning and you find yourself in darkness, as the Lord Jesus was at the ninth hour, you find yourself in distress and anguish and sorrow, what should you do? We can consider that. But I think we have before us, as a writer, A.W. Pink, has said, the fullest manifestation of divine love and at the same time the most awe-inspiring display of God's inflexible justice. Love and justice. God cannot look over, ignore, forget sin. My sin must be punished. Your sin must be punished. The justice of God won't allow him to just ignore it. What we have here on the cross is love. We've sung of it in our hymn. Love which is indescribable, so deep, so wide, so high, so great. And at the same time, justice. God must punish sin. 
And somehow, in these six hours, and particularly in the three hours of darkness from midday until three o'clock, we see Christ taken up in love and in the justice of God being poured out upon him and only him. Three hours, the land is covered in darkness. No scientist has ever explained why it was that the land, probably the whole earth, was totally dark for three hours. It's impossible to have an eclipse when you have nearly a full moon. And we know it was nearly a full moon because it was the Passover and Jerusalem was swelled with people, worshippers, pilgrims who'd come to Jerusalem to keep the Passover. And the moon was full and you cannot have an eclipse. This is one of those incidental miracles that we see at the cross demonstrating that this is the world-defining moment when God the Father will pour out upon his own dearly beloved Son, shrouded in darkness, so we can't see the lines upon his face and the wrath of God, his anger, at my sin, is put upon a substitute instead of being put upon me. Spurgeon famously called this midnight at midday, three hours when the world went quiet, when even those who stood at the foot of the cross could not really see what was going on and that was right and fitting because the scale the depth of what was happening was too much for the human mind to take in and it was only right that Christ should have some veil of privacy whilst he was made sin for his people made sin made a curse for his people, wounded for our transgression, says Isaiah, bruised for our iniquities, indescribable agony. I don't know how you've come in here this morning. We're glad to have very many visitors. You may think this is a solemn service, but... I would suggest to you this morning that when you come to a verse like Matthew 27, 46, we must come and see this as holy ground and come before it very respectfully, seeking to understand something of what is happening. Those that heard his words, verse 47, mocked. Eli, Eli, and they made a play on words and said he's calling for Elijah, Elijah, mocking him. 
suggesting that he is not the Son of God, that he doesn't have divine power, and that he's calling on a prophet to come and seek help. He was doing none such thing. Such was the mockery of the crowd. They could only speak blasphemously of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, firstly, this morning, what does it mean to be forsaken? The word here, we have it, in the Hebrew is sabachthani. That is a transliteration of the word that we see in Psalm 22 and verse 1. We see it in Hebrew, in Greek, and in Aramaic in different places in the Bible. The word spoken here is in the Aramaic, the common dialect of the people of Palestine that Christ knew that they would understood. What does it mean? It's a deep word. It means to abandon, to desert, to curse, to alienate, to leave altogether. I don't understand it. Christ was forsaken. He was forsaken by his disciples, all but John, the one that he loved, who was there principally to take instructions, to care for the mother of the Lord Jesus, Mary. Most of his friends were gone, just a few women who were faithful. He was forsaken by the crowd. One minute, one day, they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna! And now they shout, crucify him, crucify him. He's been deserted. But that's not what it means. He says in the prayer, Why have you, God's Father, God is one God, but there are three persons to the Trinity. The Word of God teaches this very clearly. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're co-equal, they're the same, but they have different functions and roles, sometimes interchangeably, but here the Son speaks to the Father. The Son has two natures, wonderfully joined together, but in these moments on the cross, we hear him speaking as a man, principally. And he says, my God, my God. He feels forsaken, abandoned. We could see this as a complaint. But I think that's a total misunderstanding. The Son is not complaining to the Father. No, he wants the will of God to be done. He said that in Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. No, he's not complaining. This is not what we would do. This is no complaint. This is an expression of the enormity of the suffering, the pain, the agony that he took for me and for you this morning if you have come 
to confess your sin. We could see this as a breaking of the Trinity. We could see that there's some division, some disagreement. But again, that would be wrong. The Son was in total agreement with the Father. Instead, I think it's right to see it as a quotation from Psalm 22, a psalm which those who were listening, the Jewish crowd, they would definitely have known Psalm 22. It was one of those psalms that were read in the synagogue regularly according to their calendar. And so as he says these words, my God, my God, they would have thought of David. And when David said these words, unusually, he wasn't speaking about his own experience. Often, when David gave a psalm, it was a poem, it was a song, it was a lament, and it was his own experience put to poetry. But David was never forsaken. Never. David is speaking prophetically, speaking of the future, when his God would be Forsaken. He's speaking as a king, as a prophet of the great king, the great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, says this, God forsaken by God. Who can fathom that? He explained it as the father turning his face away from Jesus. He says that the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Son of Man, had been laden with sin. The sin of his people had been placed upon him. And in those hours, for a short season, the Father turns away from the Son of Man speaking of his human nature. He goes on to say, but the sinless Son of God, who was and who remained part of the Trinity, was not disunited from the other members of the Trinity. It was said of Christ on two occasions. Heaven spoke, the Father said these words, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That was at Christ's baptism and again at his transfiguration. And that was eternally true, even on the cross. Another writer says this, How could God forsake God? The answer must be that God the Father deserted his Son's human nature, and this just for a short time, though in a very real and agonizing sense. As Christ called out, My God, my God, we mustn't doubt that the love of the Father to the Son was diminished. There's an illustration given. It goes like this. Imagine you, if you have children, 
Imagine you have one child who is very, very sick. And as parents, you take your child to hospital and the child is admitted to the intensive care unit and there you have to leave your child. You don't want to. Your heart is cut. You know you will see that child again by faith, but you have to leave the child. And the child puts out his or her arm looking for the parent, but the parent isn't there. Must we doubt the parent's love? No. But the felt known presence of the parent to the child for that short time is not there. Oh, it's a feeble illustration, but maybe it just helps us to see the love is there, the relationship is there, but it's been severed for a short, necessary time. Well, this morning, do you ever feel forsaken? Do you ever feel that God has turned away his face? The psalmist, speaking of his own experience, says in Psalm 77, verse 7, Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? And then in Isaiah 49, 14, the church, described as Zion, says, The Lord hath forsaken me. My Lord hath forgotten me. Let me tell you this this morning. If you are a child of God this morning, and some of you go through difficult times, I know a little, not all of what you go through, you will never, never, never be forsaken by your God. If you are a child of God, you cannot be forsaken. Because Christ was forsaken, you cannot be forsaken. You know the words, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's amazing to me, I looked it up. That sentence, that verse or a variation of it appears in 18 books of the Bible. Out of the 66 books, at least once, and in some of those books, multiple times it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's remarkable. That's a covenant pledge from one who does not lie. And if you find yourself in the darkest of hours, in the darkest of places, when every friend and family, husband, wife, children desert you, God will never leave you, nor forsake you. We have a hymn, How Firm a Foundation. This is one of the verses. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, rest, I will not... I will not desert to its foes, to our enemies. That soul, though all hell 
should endeavour to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Because Christ was forsaken, as a child of God, I can say with absolute confidence on the authority of the Word of God, I will never be deserted. Well, secondly, this morning, we thought of what it meant for Christ to be forsaken. We've just skimmed. How does Christ perfectly model a believer's right response to trials? We have people who are professing believers this morning and those who, as yet, I don't believe you've professed faith in Jesus Christ. I want to speak to both groups this morning in the two further points. My second point, Christ perfectly models a believer's right response to trials. What does he do here in verse 46? Let me tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't turn, first of all, to friends. They've gone, mostly. He doesn't turn to his family. Just Mary's there. He doesn't turn to the authorities, to the governments. They won't help him. He turns to his God. My God. He casts himself upon heaven in prayer. He turns to the only one that can help him, the only one that understands, the only one that has any comprehension of what he's going through in those hours. What do I do in trial? I turn to everything else except so often. Turn to the television, turn to Therapy turned to this, that, the other, but not Christ. In the darkest, darkest hour of his whole life, he turns to his God. Do you know, sometimes as a pastor, you visit people and you go to somebody and they've not been to chapel or we've not seen them for three months six months and you say how have you been you try not to inquire too much and you say how have you been oh i've been having a difficult time where have you been in your darkest hour you've deserted god you've left him when you needed him most not christ my god my God, he casts himself upon his God. But more than that, he doesn't just say it, he speaks so personally. He says, my God. He takes hold of him because he has a perfect, unbroken relationship between the Father and the Son. It's not broken now. And if you're a child of God, that's when you need to strengthen your relationship 
with your heavenly Father through Christ. You need to plead. You need to make it personal. You need to make it dependent. You need to say, in this very hour, I plead with you. Here's my sin. Wash it away. Here's my trial. Help me through it. We see here something else about how we should model it. We cast ourselves on God. We lay hold on him personally, fervently, pleadingly. And then there's a faithfulness that doesn't swerve. Is Christ my God? My God, why hast thou forsaken me? In that moment, he's not interested in anything else. He comes in prayer and he pleads these very few words and says, I believe by faith we're in a covenant relationship and it cannot be broken. And so in the midst of the darkest hour, he comes and desires that the sweetness, the communion, the blissfulness of that relationship which somehow has been dimmed for those few hours. Can I say that reverently? There's a time he doesn't quite feel and know the warmth of the love of the Saviour, the Father to the Saviour. But the son doesn't lose the faith. He doesn't turn away. He holds on. Don't we see this in some believers' trials? We've seen it recently of those who've been bereaved, those who go through cancer, those who feel the age of life so wearing, so wearying. And yet that's the time they feel the nearness of their God. That's what Christ yearns for here and he's modeling for us. He's showing us that when you feel in the darkest moments, when you've got questions, when you feel that God is distant, you don't run away. You run to him. You lay hold on him and you plead with him. Why? Why? Well, there's a third point this morning. We've thought of what it means for Christ to feel, to be forsaken. We can't possibly understand it. We've thought of how that somehow shows us wonderfully how every child of God should turn to their Father in heaven and come by prayer pleading prayer, but there's a third point this morning. Christ was forsaken for a time. The agony, the pain, the punishment, the suffering of a vast number of people, of a huge number of sins that each of them has committed, was somehow put into six hours, But for anybody who rejects Christ, for any who haven't turned to him, for any who have willingly chose to forsake Christ, 
they will be forsaken forever, for eternity. We've said that he will never leave us nor forsake us if we trust him, if we're in covenant relationship with him. But if we've forsaken him already, if we've turned every which one to our own way, if we've lived a sinful life, if we've never repented of our sin, then he hasn't taken my curse and I will have to be cursed instead of him. Romans 8 verse 32 He that spared not his own son but delivered, delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Because Christ was forsaken, every believer doesn't need to be forsaken and won't be forsaken. But anyone for whom Christ has not taken the curse will be cursed by the Father. What does that mean? To be cursed. Galatians 3 and verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse the punishment, the agony, the suffering of the law being made a curse for us. Quoting the book of Deuteronomy, Galatians 3.13, it says, Cursed is everyone that hangs upon a tree. Not every form of death is a curse. But crucifixion is a curse. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That form of death was specially kept by the Romans to give to their enemies, the Jews, and there Christ took the curse. But I must turn to Matthew 25. Please look at these verses together. I think they have such significance for us this morning. Matthew 25, this is the final verse that we will turn to. Matthew 25, just two pages earlier. And let me read verse 33. The Lord Jesus is speaking very near to the time when he would go to Calvary and he defines that there will be a great division. A division described as between the sheep and the goats. Verse 33 and he, that's Christ, shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. A great division. Verse 34, Then shall the king, capital K, speaking of Christ, the king shall say unto them, On his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. All that Christ has come to save from before the foundation of the earth, they will come. Who are they? Those on the right, the sheep. Verse 35. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. Those who were true Christians, they demonstrated it by their life 
I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Verse 37. Then shall the righteous answer, saying, Lord, when we saw thee hungry, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink, when saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the King, Christ, shall answer, and say unto them, Verily, I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it, unto the one of the least of my brethren, ye have done it to me. Verse 41. Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And verse 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. There's two kinds, those on the right and on the left. All of them deserve to be cursed. But Christ has taken the curse for his people, for his sheep. And those that refuse to have him, described as goats, where there was no evidence of new life, they will take their own curse away from me. These are not my words. We can't hide from what the word of God says. Christ became the curse for me, so that I don't have to be forsaken, so that I don't have to be in a dark place without Christ and without hope, but to all who reject him, who reject his love, his tenderness, his kindness, he will say, away from me. I never knew you. That's what it means to be cursed, to be sent away. That's what Christ was for me, abandoned, forsaken, left somehow by God the Father in a way that we will never understand in this life for that short time for me. And for you, if you will put your trust in the Lord.